To The Point is your source for bite-sized education commentary on the important issues impacting education today. I can promise you, your hosts won't always agree on the solutions, but their conversation adds unique insight to the national dialogue. When you need education policy analysis without the fluff, get to the point. Welcome to To The Point. I'm one of your co-hosts, Doug Mescar, partner at Stratagos Group. My other co-host, Jim Horn, to my right. Uh, today we're coming to you from the Excel and Ed Conference in Atlanta, Georgia. And today... We have been talking a lot, and actually over the course of the conference, about the impact of screen time and devices. In fact, we had a keynote yesterday where John Haight talked about how that is impacting the lives of students, uh, teenagers, kids. And I think he had some thoughts about how we could potentially start to approach this challenge. So Jim and Tara want to bring you into this conversation. Tara Reed is our guest this morning. And Tara is also a partner at Stratagos Group, and she is really connected to what's happening in Florida around this issue, which has been percolating, Tara, um, in the legislature in Florida for the last few years. So why don't we start there and get your take on what's happening in Florida, and then more broadly, Jim, on what's going on with this issue nationally and do we agree with what some of John is suggesting is going on across the country? So Tara, why don't you start us off with what's happening in Florida? Yeah, I think, you know, when I look back on many of the Excel and Ed uh, conferences and sort of the most, to me, the the speeches that stand out the most, that John Haight speech that he did in 2019 in San Diego uh, when he first published um, his book was fascinating. And I think the data really stuck with me. And what he's talking about now is sort of this post-COVID, what we now know, how it's impacting girls and boys even more so, social media. You know, in Florida, I think that speech actually inspired quite a bit of legislation to ban devices in VPK through 12. Um, And when you think about the implication of that, you know, the thing that I always think about in Florida in particular is the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas incident. And I think that from a school safety standpoint, you're going to have a lot of parents who struggle with the idea that they may not be able to reach their kids on a cell phone should the time come. But I also think we've talked about and we have to figure out a way to empower teachers to get the cell phones off the desks, but maybe not ban devices completely in the classrooms because there's relevant technology there that kids need to be using. So, Tara, you you touch on a, a key tension, school safety, the just improvements we've made on making everyone aware of what's going on. However, um, kids live digital lives, Jim. And how do we tackle this issue? And can we through policy or through regulation? We, we can. And I think we've got to be really careful here because you certainly don't want to blunt uh, the impact of technology. Technology harnessed in the right way is significant and it can ha- add tremendous value. So there seems to be a lot of conversation around addiction to, to screen time. There's a book called Glow Kids that talks about kids seem to be addicted. And, and honestly, I think we all can even look in our own personal lives. I, I have grandkids now and they all want to sort of grab an iPad and just kind of look at the iPad, play games, and they don't want to go outside and play. So there is... There is something 
clearly going on that's probably unhealthy. But at the same time, we do need technology, right? It's a way to get research. And so I don't like this where everything's kind of all of technology and all of screen time is lumped together because, you know, there's online schools. Kids are not being addicted to an online school. I mean, research. They're not being addicted to a screen because of research. Where they're getting addicted is this social side, the social media side, and then the games they play and sort of getting addicted to that. So we probably do need some policies that can discourage that part, but at the same time, not blunt the the use of technology. Go ahead, Tara. I recall the author of Glow Kids came to Florida and he did... um he did, you know, he spoke in a committee about the data and members were asking him, you know, about how to legislate ensuring that kids were not addicted. But if we were watching the committee, every member had picked up their phone at least twice. <laughs> so we're legislating, you know, trying to get kids to not be addicted to social media. But we as adults, we're doing this too. They're seeing us like we are, you know, the first influence they have and so i think until we can put down our cell phones until we can step away legislating children's behavior i don't know that it i don't know that it it does much well and i hate to agree with you jim but i i think (laughs) we'll get to the point doug (laughs) we are getting to the point and and terry you just touched on it which which is going to bring us to our next topic but setting down rules and regulations and then how those are implemented in practice, those sometimes can be wildly different or very challenging. So on this topic of devices, I think the policy really has to be thoughtful because having children, um, you can ban it in the classroom, but those things are not very far away. So are there more productive ways to address this issue? I think it's an ongoing conversation, but that takes us to Implementing policy. So Florida, again, uh, one of the nation's leaders in school choice. Partly, Jim, thank to you. Thank, thanks to you. And as the state has evolved and grown, HB1 from last year, Tara, I know you know all about that. So tell us, one, really quickly, what did HB1 do? Why does that put Florida sort of in the lead nationally on school choice? And then beyond the policy, though, how's it going? We're a year later, right, uh, approximately from when that's done, or not quite a year. How How is it going? Are we seeing some of the benefits from that, or are there some challenges cropping up? Sure. So HB1 uh, expanded ESAs in Florida at to 80, is it $8,400 for every family? Roughly. In some places, $8,800, yeah, but yeah, it's in yeah. that $8,500 $8, range. Giving parents the option to use that money for tutoring, tuition, uh, you know, homeschooling education. So really expanding and giving choice to families on what they can use this money for. And no income threshold. No Universal. In, no income threshold. Right. Right. Which, which was, you know, big change. So on the implementation side, um, that's obviously where, where things become complicated. What we've really seen and heard from families and from vendors is that the distribution of the funds to these families um, has become a real challenge. And they're struggling to get that money. They're struggling to get that in an efficient way. And until they're receiving the money to be able to make a choice, we're not implementing, you know, statewide choice at all. And I think 
you know, one of the th- concerns I have when you mentioned that there's no income um, threshold there, this started as a scholarship for low-income families. And when we moved that to expand it to everyone and give everyone the option, that's incredible. But if we're not getting the families the money on a timely fashion, those low-income families, it, it doesn't help them, right? Because they then have right. to go out of pocket $8,400. If that's a quarter of your take-home income every year, you you don't have the luxury of deciding whether or not you're going to buy it, you know, spend that money on a tutor for your kid. Right. So but, I think that an, implementation yeah, but there's is another side to it. And I think Governor Bush addressed that yesterday morning. And he's my former boss. He's probably the preeminent leader on uh, education issues, education reform, and particularly uh, parental choice. And he noted this one very obvious um, potential problem that needs to be resolved. And he said it's a capacity issue because as we talk about an ESA model uh, where dollars are deposited to a parent's account for them to spend, you know, most will probably use those dollars to buy tuition at a private school. Well, there's roughly maybe 10% capacity in private schools in Florida. I mean, that means there's a limited number of seats. So you can, it can also frustrate parents who think now that they have a choice and they are excited about being a real consumer and being able to buy the services that meet the needs of their children. But if there's not a seat available in a private school, you know, it can be frustrating, right? So, and as Tara mentioned, the implementation, you know, there's a big difference in an ESA model than a scholarship model or a voucher model. Because a voucher model is one single check being transferred to a private school, but an ESA model is millions of accounts right, for parents with lots of what could be small transactions. So the volume is incredible. So the infrastructure that you need to be able to manage that process is very significant and it's very different. And so as I think most should expect, there's a struggle in Florida. I think it will get fixed. I think technology will play a part in it. Um, But the real challenge is there needs to be more capacity in the private schools to assume this responsibility and obligation. Well, and we have to incentivize those private schools to accept scholarships to expand it, but they're not going to do that if it takes them six months to get a tuition check. Absolutely. They're not going to go into debt to create a school unless we get the process right for them to actually be able to pay their teachers. Right. Well, and I think we, again, are touching on a tension between... um, an idea that's powerful that that has a lot of traction but sometimes we get so caught up in the policy we forget to think about the messy reality on the ground there's a thing called implementation science which is really boring to a lot of people but that's where the rubber hits the road and sometimes how policies are crafted i saw this at the federal level either when it's once it becomes implemented it doesn't look anything like the original policy idea, or it's written so tightly that it becomes really difficult to adjust in real time to the challenges on the ground. And I think that speaks, Jim and Tara, to you have to write good policy. We have to have great policy, but we also have to have great people. Jim, like you, as leader of the Florida Department of Education, implementing these policies in ways that ultimately yield success and that we have the patience because we're not in a completely free market situation when it comes to education. There's a lot of 
um, different players. There's It's a government market that we're looking to change and move. It takes time. So sometimes early lessons from implementation are not a sign of failure. They're actually a sign of we're making change in a system that historically is resistant to change. Right. And it's glitchy, right? I mean, it ain't any significant policy enacted. I mean, I was part of enacting a lot of policies in the in the 90s. Uh, and then when I became commissioner of education in 2001, my job was now to implement them. And I was like, oh my God, what had we done? I mean, the implementation was 10 times harder than passing <laughs> the policy. Um, and there were things that we clearly hadn't thought of because the policy is often thought up in theory, right? It's right. not often contemplating practice. It's just theory. And so practice is hard, much harder than theory. And so I think we shouldn't be too overly critical of some of the little snafus that I think are occurring for it. We will fix them. We will get them there. Again, I still think the big challenge is the capacity issue because I do think that that is something that will take more than a year to fix. I think some of the technology about the movement of funds will get resolved in the next year or two, Tara, but I think capacity is going to take four or five years before we see that resolve itself. Well, Tara, we'll get we'll get out on this. So bring us to the point as you look at what's happening or what will be happening as we look into the next year in the Florida legislature, knowing how much time you spend with legislators, what is their focus? Are they looking at some of the implementation? And then more than that, what are they looking to build upon as they start to see this policy roll out? I do think the HB1 uh, process, you know, looking at the process and and seeing how we're distributing the funds, how we're getting them to parents, how parents are enrolling, that is really the focus of most of the education members right now. And then, you know, in the Senate, looking at how we make public schools more competitive. If we're investing in private mm. schools and in school choice, right. we should also be looking at how we allow public schools to compete. Uh, so I think that's also going to be a pretty interesting conversation. Well, fantastic. Well, Tara, thanks for joining us today on To The Point. I will make more of an effort to just disagree with Jim next time, but thank you for tuning in. To The Point is your source for bite-sized education commentary on the important issues impacting education today. I can promise you, your hosts won't always agree on the solutions, but their conversation adds unique insight to the national dialogue. Jim Horn is a strategist partner and former Florida Education Commissioner serving under Governor Jeb Bush. Doug Messicar is a strategist partner and a former teacher. He's also served as a senior ed tech executive and a U.S. Department of Education Deputy Chief of Staff. This episode is powered by Strategist Group, a national education management consultancy. To learn more, visit www.strategistgroup.com and follow us on LinkedIn. When you need education policy analysis without the fluff, get to the point.